Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to this week's episode. I'm sorry I have not been around for a couple weeks. I've basically been in California every week this month, with the exception of the second week, I believe. I just had some business to take care of. I think it's basically good for now. So I don't think I'll be making any more short trips to California like I have been. So I can focus now on us. I have a few notes about the show before we get started. This is an independent one-woman podcast, which means I depend on you, the listeners, to help keep the show in production, and there are a number of ways that you can help. You can leave a nice rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platforms you listen to your shows on. You can follow me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, comment, share, like, all the good stuff. You can recommend the show in true crime discussion groups and forums. And if you would like to go above and beyond, you can subscribe to California Dreaming's Patreon. Starting at just $1 a month, you can gain access to dozens of exclusive full-length episodes that you won't hear anywhere else. And if a subscription isn't your thing and you would like to still make a contribution, you can do so through PayPal using my email, californiapod at gmail.com. The links to everything are in the show notes. All right, that's all I've got. Let's get to today's episode. There are a couple of things that brought me to today's episode, which is another case outside of California. I've actually been having kind of a hard time keeping up with this podcast over the last couple of months, you may have noticed. So what I've been doing when a story comes into my brain, I just go with it without thinking too much about the geography. But what I am going to do for you is I'm going to, at least for a while, try to take the show back to its roots the way I originally formatted it. I'm going to slow it down, I'm going to mellow it out, and I'm going to reach way back to the way things used to be when I was too worried about putting too much of myself beyond the sound of my voice out there. So that being said, this is a wood chipper episode, but I might just be able to help you get a good night's sleep if you're headed to bed right now, just for now. So it all started a couple of weeks ago with a recording session that I was having and a wood chipper. I was recording about three weeks ago and it was right after a large storm had come through this area. There were people working outside my apartment cutting down a severely damaged tree and they were putting it through a wood chipper. The noise may or may not have been picked up by my mic. I may have been able to talk over it. But the real problem was it was very distracting and I had a hard time getting through that recording. So while I sat around and waited, I took a video of those guys out there with the wood chipper and I posted it in our Facebook discussion group. One of you, maybe a couple of you commented that the next episode should include a wood chipper. So here we are. This case that we're talking about today also happens to be the very first episode of Forensic Files that premiered on TLC, hosted, of course, by the late, great Peter Thomas. I just covered another case that was featured on Forensic Files on September's Patreon episode. That one was from their second season. So when I started to look into this story, which is referred to as the woodchipper murder, in the media and online, I was pleasantly surprised that it also happened to be featured on the premiere episode of Forensic Files. I also didn't realize that this case took place in Newtown, Connecticut, and that triggered me to want to take a look at the story that would put Newtown back on the map less than a month shy of 26 years later when the Sandy Hook Elementary School tragedy took place. I've talked about that shooting in a past episode. I got a little bit of pushback for some opinions that I had about the mother of the shooter. And ever since then, I've kind of wanted to go back and take a closer look at the story. There's also a very lengthy report that I have yet to read about the Sandy Hook shooting. And I definitely want to know more about the finer details of that case as well. 
The story that we're going to talk about today prior to the 2012 Sandy Hook shooting used to be referred to as one of the most shocking and brutal murders in Connecticut history. And you know, now that I think about it, I have about a half dozen stories out of the state of Connecticut that I've been wanting to talk about over the years. So maybe what I'll do starting with this episode is do like a series on like the constitution state while I'm here, you know, I'd actually love to do all of the states. That'll give me something to work towards, right? Instead of trying to keep moving forward with this and having no plan or strategy for anything. Well, anyway, another thing about this story is that it's old and by old, I mean, November of 1986 old. 1986 used to not sound all that far away, but when you realize that we are almost a quarter century into the 2000s, then yeah, that puts this into perspective. I was in the sixth grade that year. That was the year the space shuttle Challenger exploded off the coast of Florida. If you were in elementary school, maybe even middle school or high school, then chances are you watched it happen live on TV like we all did. So we're talking 37 years ago this November, this case took place. Newtown, Connecticut looks like the model city that you would take pictures of and put on postcards from the New England area of the United States. There's a video on the city's website and all you see is like trees and church steeples and ranches and historic buildings in this town that was founded 318 years ago in 1705. It's tranquil and peaceful and serene. It has everything woods, hills, lakes, streams, meadows, situated in the southwestern part of Connecticut. It's a little less than two hours away from New York City. It's described as a safe place to live and to raise a family. And people who work in the city do live in this area of Connecticut, away from the busy, fast-paced life of New York. When it comes to crime, there is very little to speak of. Violent crimes in the town are unheard of. The most serious crimes would typically be a burglary or some sort of property crime. In fact, at the time the story took place in 1986, Newtown had not seen a murder since 1975, more than a decade. Newtown is a very affluent community, so it is common for the people who live there to maintain a certain lifestyle. They want to live outside the city. They commute to their high-paying jobs that are in New York City. And another common thing is for just about everybody to hire a private nanny. Sometimes having a nanny is a necessity. Sometimes it's a privilege. In the story today, in our case, it is a necessity but they don't struggle to have a nanny or to have these types of, you know, staff in their house. A couple who are residents of Newtown back in 1986, the couple that we're going to talk about today, were Richard and Helly Crafts, and their last name is spelled C-R-A-F-T-S, so Crafts. Helly was originally from Denmark and worked as a flight attendant for Pan Am Airlines. Her husband, Richard, was a pilot. Helly was ambitious, and she worked hard to make sure that she would be able to take care of her children, to have a devoted husband, a beautiful home, in addition to a successful career. Richard and Helly met at an airline convention in Miami, Florida in 1969. The couple began dating and were together for more than six years when they finally tied the knot in 1975. They set down roots in Newtown and went on to have three children born in 1977, 1980, and 1982. And from the outside, like a lot of these cases that we talk about on our shows, it appears for all intents and purposes that the crafts are living the dream with the great life and a beautiful family. Richard was also a very well-liked member of the Newtown community in fact, in addition to being a pilot, he was also an official member of the Newtown Police Department. Richard seemed more like a community-type officer in that role. I think they called it an auxiliary officer, where he would do stuff like speak at schools, 
if someone went on vacation, he would be that officer that would drive by the home and make sure all is well. Yeah, it's not a thing where I'm from. I don't think police would ever provide such a service, but this is a long time ago and it sounds like it's kind of like a quaint little community. So yeah, not Vegas. He, uh, can you imagine trying to call Las Vegas Metro Police to go check on your house while you're out of on vacation? They would tell you to like F off. So anyway, Richard would also do things like direct traffic, car accidents, just extra stuff to help support the full-time officers. Kelly had a much different personality than Richard. She was the one who was very warm and sweet, caring and loving, but just well-liked in the community. She worked hard and she spent as much time as she could doting on her children. But because both she and Richard traveled for a living, they did have a live-in nanny named Dawn Thomas. And that's what was going on on the night of November 18th, going into the 19th of 1986. Helly got home from a flight on the evening of Tuesday, November 18th. She got a ride home from another flight attendant who made the long trip back to New York from Frankfurt, Germany. They drove home from JFK International Airport. Helly was dropped off. The flight attendant who dropped her off said that the conversation was mainly about how glad Helly was to be off for the Thanksgiving holiday and that she was looking forward to getting to spend it at home that year. The holidays are very busy for the line of work that Helly and Richard were in, so it's understandable that she was excited. Thanksgiving was coming up the following week. When Helly arrived at home, Richard was having dinner with Don, the nanny, and the three kids. Helly had made it home just in time to join them. The colleague who gave her a ride said that she could see that the house was busy and all the lights were on. Everything seemed normal as she pulled up and dropped Helly off. When Helly saw that everyone was there, she made the comment to her coworker, Oh, Richard's home. So not too long after Helly got home that evening and sat down with her family to join them, snow began to fall. It just so happened that night, a massive storm came in and blanketed Newtown and the surrounding areas with several inches of snow in a very short period of time. It wasn't typical for that time of year in late November for a storm that big to move over the area. Usually storms of that magnitude come well into winter. This one came in that evening, and it ended up knocking out power to several neighborhoods in Newtown, and that included the Crafts House. So what Richard did was he got the children up, and he knocked on the nanny's door to wake her up too, and he told her that he was going to take her and the children over to their aunt's house, who is his sister, because her house still had power. Dawn did inquire about Helly's whereabouts, and Richard explained that she had work in the middle of the night. She got up, she took all of her flight stuff with her, and left about an hour before. Richard then drove his three children and Dawn over to his sister's house, which is in nearby Westport, Connecticut. He told his sister that he would return early that afternoon to pick the kids and Dawn back up. Richard said from there he went back to his house to see if the electricity had come back on yet, but it wouldn't be until much later on that day that power would be restored to his home. It was after that that he went back to his sister's house to pick up Don and the kids. But as far as Helly was concerned and where she was, I mean, she was apparently working according to Richard, but it hadn't even been nearly a day since anyone had heard from her. And there was something that just didn't really seem right about the timing of everything. It wasn't like Helly to have gotten home from a long flight like she had from Germany late the afternoon, sit down and have dinner with her family, then for an unseasonably strong snowstorm to have blown into town, and then for her to turn around and go on another flight in the middle of the night when she just said that she was really super happy to be home for the Thanksgiving holiday, which was still more than a week away. Based on the conversation that the colleague had with Helly when she dropped her off the night before, it sounded like Helly was looking forward to having the next couple of days off. She did not mention having to turn around and go back to work 
In fact, I don't even think that they do that. It's not a thing that I don't think would ever happen because of like fatigue and rules and stuff in between how much time people are supposed to be working. I don't know, maybe that's for the pilots. But anyway, people kind of started wondering, where's Heli? Well, another two days would pass, taking us to November 20th. And that's when the problem with Heli really started to get people concerned. She was supposed to be at work on that day, but she was a no-show, no-call. And that was very unusual for Heli. So one of her coworkers called Richard and asked him about where she was at and if she was okay. And Richard explained that he had received a phone call from Heli that she was in Denmark. He said that her mother had suddenly fallen ill and she went to go visit her for a few days. Richard told that story to Heli's colleagues at Pan Am. He also told that same story to their babysitter, Dawn, as well as to his three children. He mentioned that Heli brought her regular flight luggage with her and that she took her car and it should be parked in the Pan Am Airlines designated employee parking garage. So a couple of Heli's coworkers went out into the parking lot to see if they could figure out anything by taking a look inside her car. They found her car and looked into the window and they could see Heli's things in the back seat, including a pair of black boots, which were the ones that she had on when she was last known to have worked on that return flight from Germany. So it would be kind of weird that Heli would have gone back to work without those boots because those are the ones that she usually wore during that time of year in the late fall. So they kind of just figured that Heli would show up after a few days but three more days would go by and Heli's car still remained in the parking lot and nobody heard a word from her. So her friends and coworkers started to become worried all over again. It was just very unusual for her to be out of touch with her friends for even a day, much less any more than that. So when they continued to not get any answers about where Heli was at, her friends and colleagues decided to head down to the local police department and to file a missing persons report. They were pretty convinced that something was wrong. Heli is not the type of person that would just vanish and go silent like this. The news of Heli's disappearance made the local media that evening. The community and the local news were very interested in Heli's story because crime was so rare in Newtown but this was also a particularly troubling case because it isn't every day that a prominent member of the community and a mother of three suddenly vanishes into thin air. It really had the community on edge. And as the story about what happened to Heli emerged at the beginning, what you seem to have on the surface is a picture-perfect all-American family living the dream, right? Not so fast. Heli's pilot of a husband was landing more than just his plane into foreign places while he was zipping around the world on his airliner. In fact, it's been reported that Richard had a long-standing affair with another flight attendant that he worked with for the better part of 20 freaking years. And well, it turns out that Heli was very well aware of what was going on with her husband. And about three months before she vanished, Heli retained a divorce attorney. And in order to file for divorce and bring about these allegations of adultery, that attorney wanted to get some hard evidence, some proof of this, these affairs. So she suggested that Heli hire a private investigator to see what he could dig up. And sure enough, that PI was able to come up with some pictures that provided definitive proof. And just to actually see it was very devastating for Heli. But that was the push that she needed to move forward with filing for divorce, which she did. But when it came to Richard, he had no interest in divorcing, nor did he ever have any intentions of ever getting divorced. In fact, when Heli did file and went to go have him served, Richard actually refused to allow himself to be served with the divorce papers by the sheriff deputy who came over to serve him. He came up with a whole bunch of excuses. He refused to take the paperwork. He made appointments to come into the sheriff's office in person to be served, but then he would never show up. Remember, Richard was an auxiliary member of the law enforcement in Newtown. They don't 
really talk a lot about this guy and what he was like as a person. But Richard, he's a pilot and he's a cop. He's an adulterer. I mean, I bet this is really all about, first of all, his narcissism. But it's also about money and having to split half of everything that he probably thinks that he's entitled to with his wife and then to have to pay child support for three children for a really long time because they're still young. You know this guy, when she started talking divorce, he started crunching numbers and he was not liking the results. Richard doesn't want to avoid divorce because he loved Helly and wanted to work it out and keep his family intact. He didn't want a divorce out of pure greed. Right before Helly left for her flight to Germany, she and Richard had an argument about divorce. But they agreed to sit down and talk about it when she got back home. A week went by and there was still no word from Helly. And it was getting close to the Thanksgiving holiday, which was a thing she was very much looking forward to. Helly's friends were not believing that she would be out of touch with them for this long, nor did they believe she would not be home for the holidays. So one of her friends decided to call Helly's mom over in Denmark. Remember, Richard had been telling everyone that she was visiting her sick mother, and I guess that was just going to be his story indefinitely. Well, when the friend got in touch with Helly's mom, she found out that Mom was actually in perfectly good health and she had not spoken to her daughter for a few weeks. And she certainly hadn't been there in the last week visiting her either. So now they knew that Richard had been lying to them all along about Helly's whereabouts. And this just makes everyone start to think he's hiding something. And they're even more worried now. It's no surprise to find out that Helly's friends, they didn't like her husband anyway. Not shocked. It's easy to tell when you have a best friend and her boyfriend or her husband doesn't treat her properly and all the friends just smile to his face and put up with him because you love and care about your friend. So when he lied to them about her visiting her mother, they already had a bad feeling about him. So it was easy to start being suspicious of him right away. Richard ended up taking his kids to his sister's house for Thanksgiving dinner. The sister where he brought the kids the night that the power went out in the house and Helly vanished forever, apparently. They all knew Helly wouldn't miss spending Thanksgiving with her family for anything, and it only made things worse for her friends who were already afraid something bad had happened to her because they were kind of still hanging on to some kind of hope that she would miraculously show up for Thanksgiving because she wouldn't miss it for anything. And it's not just because she wasn't showing up for work or for Thanksgiving holiday. And it wasn't even the fact that Richard had been lying to them about where Helly was at. No, there was more going on in the background. Helly had been telling some of her friends some ominous things. And it wasn't even really about the affair, but actually Richard's attitude and behavior towards Helly. She had been getting some really bad vibes from him. She felt like he was so angry with her to a point where she was afraid things were going to turn violent. She even told at least one close friend that if something happened to her, if she turned up missing one day, then to make sure that it gets thoroughly investigated. She said that she wouldn't put it past Richard to try and do something to cause her harm and then to try to make it look like an accident. That kind of sounds like something that he may have even threatened her with. You know, I could totally see him saying something like, I will kill you and I'll make it look like an accident. I could completely see him saying something like that. So when Helly did turn up missing, those words came rushing back to her friends and loved ones, and they immediately went to authorities with that information. Investigators looking into Helly's case asked Richard to come in for questioning a few days into the month of December. They were like, so where's your wife? There are a whole bunch of people looking for her, and some of them are pointing fingers at you. They are telling us that you know more than you're letting on about where Helly's at. They think you know what's happened to her. Where is she? Where did she go? Is she missing? What's going on? 
and Richard just stuck to the same story that all the other bad husbands stick to. She just got up and left and I never saw her again. Well, investigators weren't believing him, and after several hours of questioning, they asked Richard if he would be willing to take a polygraph, and he said that he would. So they not only brought in one polygrapher, they brought in two. And they literally subjected Richard to three hours of questioning, which seems kind of excessive for a polygraph. But this guy, he's a pilot. He's a member of law enforcement. He seems to have nerves of steel because he apparently passed the polygraph with flying colors. Not one single bit of deception was detected by either of these two. Those two polygraphers told the investigators that they believed Richard. They believed him when he said that they that he didn't know where his wife was. And they advised the detectives to start looking at other suspects. During the polygraph examination, Richard did admit that he was lying to Helly's friends when he told them that she had flown to Denmark to visit her sick mother. When he was asked why he made up stories about his wife's whereabouts, he said that he didn't want to bring up all the mess about his marriage and the affairs and that they were talking about getting divorced and stuff. He didn't want to air his dirty laundry, he said. Never mind trying to help out the investigation and find his wife or anything, right? That's never the priority with these men. It's all about them saving their good name and their reputation. But he framed his story now that it was Helly who walked out on him and his children. She found out that he was having affairs and decided to leave him. He was embarrassed by that, and so he made up the story about Helly going to visit her mother instead. And so after that interview and that polygraph, it seemed like the detectives were basically ready to clear Richard off the suspect list and move on to the next. They shook his hand and sent him on his merry way, apparently. After Richard was cleared as a suspect, the Newtown police decided that this case might just be bigger than their department was capable of handling at the time. And so they decided to tap the resources of the Connecticut State Police. And along with that, this will now bring about the help of the chief of forensic laboratories, Dr. Henry Lee. He gets talked a lot about in forensic files, and he was brought up in another episode of mine recently. And I know he's become like a controversial figure. And the fact of the matter is, what he's going to talk about in this case is pretty basic stuff today. But back when this case took place in the 80s, Dr. Lee was considered or is considered one of the pioneers of forensic science and his whole institute dedicated to the field, which is located in Connecticut. So they reached out to Dr. Lee in order to see if they could come up with some leads that weren't so obvious, some pieces of evidence, I should say, that could bring them some leads. Because time was getting away from them, the longer Helly stayed missing, the chances of finding her alive diminished. The state police formed a task force dedicated to Helly's missing persons case. When Richard passed the polygraph and police were left with no directions to go, they had to start looking at the less obvious bits of evidence that might get easily overlooked. Two weeks into Helly's disappearance, the task force was in full swing, trying to piece together what little information they had about Helly and her disappearance. They had a room dedicated to this case where they organized all of their evidence and met for their daily briefings. The police were receiving a lot of phone tips and all of Helly's friends and family were spoken to in order to get an idea of what direction they should go in. They also started speaking to Helly and Richard's neighbors to see what, if anything, they knew or saw happen between the couple in recent weeks. Investigators also took a look at bank records to see if Helly was accessing her funds at all from anywhere. They checked phone records to see if there had been any calls that she may have tried to make to any of her family members or friends. Back then, bank records and phone records were the two main places to look for a missing person. But investigators found nothing. There was no activity on any of Helly's credit cards, 
There were no phone calls that anyone could find a record of that could be linked back to her. But still, after more than two weeks of searching for Heli, the police ran into nothing but dead ends. It would only be a matter of time before police would get the big break that they desperately needed. The private investigator who Heli hired to spy on Richard, as well as the nanny, Dawn, the two of them had come down to the police station with some important information. Dawn said that while she was doing some housework, she noticed some unusual stains in the carpeting in the master bedroom, which to her appeared to be kind of reddish, brownish in color. Richard had made a couple of attempts to clean it, but he wasn't able to. So he eventually just ripped up all the carpet out of the master bedroom. And Dawn just kind of looked on, puzzled and suspicious. And that's just how arrogant this Richard Crafts guy was. He just thought that he could go around and do all of this super suspicious stuff right there in front of his nanny and his kids and nobody would say anything because he had whatever story he had or whatever excuses he made up. The private investigator, of course, was able to provide the information about the looming divorce that Heli had begun the process of trying to have him served, that Richard had been avoiding it because he didn't want to get divorced, and that they were supposed to have a talk about it when she returned from Germany the week before Thanksgiving, but as far as anyone knew, that conversation never took place because Heli vanished sometime between the time she got home with her co-worker the evening of November 18th and the middle of the night when the power went out and Richard woke Don and the kids up to take them to the sister's house since the storm had knocked out the electricity. The implication here being, of course, that after Don and the kids left, Richard somehow made Heli disappear. And the remnants of what he left behind included those stains on the floor. The investigation into Heli's disappearance continued into December and her husband Richard was back to being the main person of interest based on the information provided by the nanny and the private investigator. Authorities were no longer willing to just overlook Richard because of his polygraph results, no matter what the polygraphers suggested they do. The more investigators dove into this case, the more questions that they were coming up with. For instance, why would Heli just up and leave her children in the middle of the night and vanish without so much as a word to them? Why would she just all of a sudden cut off all contact with the rest of her family and friends as well? There was nothing about Heli to indicate that she was the type of person who would just up and leave like that, especially when it came to her kids. Also, back to what the nanny, Dawn, had witnessed, those stains on the carpet, she saw the stains and she did ask Richard about them. His explanation was that during the storm that came through the night that Heli vanished, which is called Storm Carl, and it hit Newtown particularly hard that very night that Heli disappeared. I read an article by a journalist who was a cub reporter at the time for the Newtown Bee, and she wrote about the storm and not just one missing wife, but three of them in the 1980s, all of them from Newtown. The article said, quote, Little did I know that a year earlier, just down the road was a barn belonging to a young mother who was missing. In fact, her case kicked off a string of missing Newtown wives and suspect husbands, Elizabeth Heath, Heli Crafts, and Regina Brown, all in the 1980s. These murder cases would embroil and devour the Newtown Police Department, for which I had just been hired to cover as my beat. That's kind of an interesting article. So if at the end of the second part of this episode, because this is going to be two parts, if I have some space, I will read more of it to you about these other cases that this reporter had covered in the 80s, Heli being one of them. So anyway, Richard said that the stains on the carpet came from a kerosene heater that he was using when the storm caused the, the power outage. He said that he had gone down to the garage and brought both of their heaters inside and placed one of them on the floor in the master bedroom and that kerosene had accidentally spilled out of the heater, staining the rug. 
Richard said that he tried to clean it, but it wasn't coming out, so he ripped up the carpet himself and dumped it in a landfill that services Newtown. He said that in order to make it easier to transport and move the carpet, that he cut him into two-foot strips. Well, Hallie's private investigator decided that he wanted to go and search for those pieces of carpet. And while he did actually find some pieces of it after hours of searching, when they were sent over to the lab, they weren't able to find anything that to indicate that Hallie had bled on any of the pieces. So the pieces of carpet that did have those stains that we are assuming was blood, maybe Richard threw that someplace else and he just got lucky that the private investigator wasn't able to recover that particular piece. While that was disappointing, the private investigator actually took it upon himself to continue to assist with the investigation and to make sure that the police stayed on top of it as well. He was convinced that Richard was the one who caused Helly to disappear and he wanted to prove it. And there are some who are involved in this case who said that if it weren't for the private investigator, the police may have continued to ignore Richard as a suspect, which they had clearly been doing after he passed that polygraph test. They probably had to take a good look at their policies when it comes to developing a suspect and how much stock to put into polygraph results. They didn't have any good leads anyway, so it didn't really make a difference. I think they could have just kept on looking at Richard, especially because he lied. So they started taking a look at Richard's bank account records to see what he had been up to in the days and weeks leading up to and following Helly's disappearance. And when they started to look at some of the transactions on Richard's credit cards, they found some interesting things. But most curious were the things that he was buying and charging on his credit card in the days after Helly disappeared, such as a whole new set of bed linens, including a comforter and pillows. What made it unusual is that he bought this stuff in the middle of this huge storm. It was such a severe storm that it really stood out as odd timing because nobody was out and about. The ominous thing that investigators found on Richard's credit card records was the fact that he rented a wood chipper also during this huge storm that blew through Newtown the night that Helly disappeared. During the storm, Richard rents a wood chipper. I mean, it's a thing that might be explained away. There's lots of down trees and branches, but I don't think there are people out there with wood chippers putting branches and parts of trees through these machines while the actual storm is in the middle of happening. But maybe Richard felt like cleaning up, I guess. Yeah, right. Nobody's out there during the storm picking up down trees and branches. You're going to get hit by some down trees and branches. The date of the rental was on the 18th. That's the day Helly came home from Frankfurt. Richard also purchased a freezer that day, a new washing machine, and he rented a U-Haul. It was just a lot of crazy activity going on during this crazy storm and his wife vanishing. It's circumstantial, but at the end of the day, sometimes circumstantial is plenty good for us, right? And it was plenty in terms of probable cause for investigators because they were able to get a search warrant. They would end up serving that search warrant on Christmas Day. On this video that I watched on YouTube about this case, they interviewed Dr. Henry Lee about this particular segment, and he said that they specifically picked Christmas Day to serve the search warrant because they didn't want to make the kids feel bad or make them suffer anymore because of what they were going through with their mom being missing and all. And... Dr. Lee also said that they didn't want the neighbors being too nosy, so everyone agreed that they would serve this warrant in kind of like a low-key way to not bother any of the neighbors. Personally, I don't think that that's the real reason why. I think that's just something Dr. Henry Lee made up just to look good, like we're being sympathetic to these children. Nah. I think that they didn't want to run into any interference from Richard. 
He's kind of sort of been a step ahead of police and investigators and detectives with an answer for everything this whole entire time. Remember, he's a member of their law enforcement force. I think this was still a time when police kind of sort of treated people with what they called kid gloves. And it's been a really long time since I've even used that term anymore, honestly, because it doesn't seem like people with a high standing in the community or even celebrities these days, they're just not given special treatment like they used to be. And I think Richard Crafts had been such a pain in the ass for these investigators that they waited for him to go out of town, down to Florida actually, to spend the holidays there in the warmer climate with the kids. And I think it had more to do with the police not wanting to have to deal with Richard as opposed to them not wanting to ruin Christmas for the children. And that's just my opinion. Dr. Henry Lee gets to have all of his whack opinions and I get to have mine too. When they served the warrant and they went into the house, they found the whole place looked like it had been ransacked. The home was completely tossed upside down. All the carpeting had been ripped up. Furniture had been overturned or missing. It looked like it had been staged. Like I said, Richard Crafts was always a step ahead. But his biggest problem is that he thought he was the smartest guy in the room. He thought all this messing around and tampering with evidence was going to cause him to confuse the investigation to a point that he'd be able to walk away from it. And that's what I think is going on here. I think Richard planned this vacation and staged this to look like his home was burglarized while he was away, turning himself into a victim. They also found that some items had been recently put into the fireplace and burned. And I'm not exactly sure what they found in the fireplace, but it appeared that there were some remnants of things that just don't go in there, things that look like pieces of furniture, maybe something that broke or perhaps got blood on it. They also found two bed frames with the mattresses missing. They also found a king-size mattress that had been flipped onto its side and leaning up against a wall. When investigators brought that mattress back down into its place, they found blood stains on it. And those stains were near the end of the bed where the nanny had said she had seen dark stains on the bedroom carpeting. Samples of the blood from the mattress were collected for analysis. But the kinds of testing of blood that was available at that time, back in, in the 80s, the only thing they could test for was blood type and whether the person who the blood came from was male or female. When the blood was tested, it was confirmed that the blood had come from a female and the type was O, which is what Hallie's blood type was. When it comes to the way the blood was deposited on the items that were found to have been stained, According to Dr. Henry Lee, it came from some kind of medium impact type spatter. So there was some kind of blunt force hit that produced that type of spatter that Henry Lee observed at the scene. We're all familiar with all that sort of stuff by now, but like I said, in 1986, this was new science. And even though they have all this really valuable evidence now that they're finding inside the craft's home, it wasn't as valuable as it would have been today and it also wasn't as meaningful because people didn't know very much about this stuff. This case, Helly's case, is riddled with challenges. They felt like the motive was shaky, but I disagree with that completely. You're talking about a guy who had been carrying on affairs for pretty much their entire marriage and we can already tell that this guy is greedy, self-centered, narcissistic he's the kind of guy who has to get his way no matter what it takes he was not going to be pushed into a divorce he was not going to split his assets he was not going to share custody of his children richard crafts was a very controlling and manipulative man just look at all the trouble that he's gone through to not have to get divorced it's absolutely nuts among the other things that investigators did not have, aside from what they believed to be a weak motive, is they didn't have a murder weapon. They didn't necessarily have a crime scene to work with. At least, the one where Heli ended up at, so far, they've come up with no witnesses to anything unusual, and worst of all, they had no idea where Heli was at. They were sure she was dead, but they needed to find her 
Nobody cases were virtually impossible to prosecute at the time. They needed somehow to prove that Helly didn't walk away from her life, that she wasn't kidnapped by some unknown bad guy, that she didn't get into an accident somewhere and is just yet to be discovered. They're sure that somebody murdered her. They just had to prove it. And they were hoping that the search of the house would give them some answers as to what Richard did with Helly, but they still had no idea where she was and nothing about the search of their residence revealed any answers as to where she might be. It would actually turn out to be a tip from the public that would ultimately be the next big break in this case. Helly's story was making headlines in Newtown and the surrounding communities. And as a result of the publicity, on December 29, 1986, a snowplow operator named Joseph Hine contacted police with some critical information. On the night of the big storm, Carl, that swept through Newtown on the night of the 18th, going into the 19th, Joseph was actually out there in the middle of the night with his snowplow, clearing the roads when he saw something unusual. There was a man alone on a steel bridge in the very early morning hours. Nobody was out that night except for people who work on the roads and on the highways. The man had a wood chipper on the bridge and he was operating it in the middle of this terrible storm. He had it pointed over the side of the bridge which crossed over the Housatonic River. And remember, they already have the bank records showing that Richard rented a wood chipping machine on November 18th. But the snowplow driver did actually get a look at Richard and was able to identify him because as he got closer with his snowplow, Richard actually turned and faced him and waved for him to go around. And then a few hours later, when the snowplow driver, Joseph, crossed over the bridge for a second time, it was closer to sunrise, he saw that Richard was still there with the wood chipper, working away at whatever he was feeding through that thing. And with that, Richard finally became the prime suspect in Helly's disappearance. And now they have a lead that took them to the likely crime scene. And the thought of what they may or may not find there, based on the snowplow driver's information, Whatever the case is, or whatever the case was going to be, it was going to be gruesome. Investigators got their crime scene people together very quickly and made their way over to the area where the snowplow driver said the wood chipper was pointing. And it was at a location right along the shore. So whatever Richard was putting through the wood chipper, not everything was landing in the water, fortunately for investigators. They set up a whole bunch of tents and everybody, including Dr. Henry Lee, basically just grabbed a handful of the fresh wood chips that they were finding along the shore of the river and began the painstaking process of sifting through it all to try and sort what might be anything other than branches and leaves. The media also began to show up as the word started to spread about Richard Crafts potentially having been on the bridge the night of the storm, the night Helly vanished with a wood chipper. The searchers worked for hours on end, and it was freezing cold outside. This is the middle of winter in Connecticut, and they're just hoping amongst all hope that they find the most minuscule pieces of evidence, what they believe to be the last bits of Helicraft's earthly existence. The searching continued for several days in this extremely cold weather, but they were able to recover the evidence that they so desperately needed. In that TV show that I watched about this story on YouTube, Dr. Lee listed the number of items that they found. 56 bone chips, 2,660 hairs, one tooth which had some dental work done to it, one toenail, and one fingertip. The total weight of everything that they found that came from a human body came to just under 3 ounces or 85 grams. Even though it was a really small amount of what was left of her, it was enough to show where Helly ended up. These were her remains. It was all that was left of her, and it answered the questions. What happened to Helly? 
and that she was in fact murdered. And the way the bone chips were made, the bone chips that they found, investigators, analysts, they were able to show that the only way that those bones could have ended up broken up into chips like that were if those bones passed through a commercial wood chipping machine. They were also able to match Hallie's hair from her personal hairbrush to the hairs that were recovered from below the bridge. The hairs matched up with having been identically bleached and identically dyed the same color. And they were also able to tell that there was some stress and trauma that the hair had been through, indicative of having been made to pass through a wood chipping machine as well. Yes, that man put her head through a rented wood chipper and investigators were able to pick up 2,660 hairs from it. Human remains were not the only things that were recovered from the riverbank. They found pieces of shredded paper. Those were all collected, and when analysts pieced them together, it turned out to be a letter to Heli from her mother in Denmark. Also near the mail, they discovered shredded up pieces of greenish-blue fabric. When that was shown to the family nanny, Dawn, she identified it as being Heli's favorite nightgown. It's believed that that nightgown had pockets. It was kind of like a house dress type of a thing. So it had pockets and investigators believe that the letter from Heli's mom was inside one of those pockets when her stuff was put through the wood chipper. That piece of toenail that they found was painted pink. Back at the Crafts home, they found that bottle of pink nail polish amongst Heli's belongings. And they were able to forensically link the paint on the toenail as having come from the pink polish found in the home. They also identified the tooth with the dental work as having come from Heli as well when it was compared to her dental records. Divers also went into the river to see what, if anything, Richard, the smartest guy in the room, right? To see what he may have dumped into the water. And sure enough, Richard isn't as smart as he seems to think he is. In fact, he's pretty dumb. And you know, he was really close to getting away with this because the police didn't believe he had anything to do with Heli having gone missing early on in the case. In fact, they eliminated him. But luckily, Hallie's divorce attorney had advised her to hire that private investigator and he ended up being the one to make sure that the police thoroughly investigated Richard because he always thought from the beginning that Richard did something to make Hallie disappear. But anyway, the dive team found a chainsaw at the bottom of the river. That chainsaw was also examined by analysts at the lab and they did find plethora of evidence stuck to it. Chainsaws, the mechanics of these things require it to have grease on its parts. And this grease actually caused some of the debris from what it was used to cut up. And that debris found stuck to the chainsaw grease included human tissue, small bone fragments, fibers from the greenish blue nightgown, and more dyed blonde hair. All of it was stuck to the chainsaw still, even though it had been submerged in the river for well over a month. Smartest guy in the room, that Richard Crafts, right? Yeah, his dumbass also tried to destroy the serial number imprinted into a metal part of the chainsaw, but analysts were able to restore the serial number and it was linked back to where it was sold, which was some local mom and pop hardware store. The owner had a shoebox with some receipts in it. When investigators went over there and asked him about the sale of the chainsaw, he picked through all of his receipts that he had in that box and he found the one for the chainsaw. It was $499 plus tax and it was sold to none other than Richard Crafts. The serial numbers matched up. And that was enough for Richard to be indicted on first-degree murder charges, which wasn't a thing at the time, meaning there had never been an arrest or a conviction in Connecticut for a murder without a body. It had been a rare thing across the United States as it was 
There is a Wikipedia page dedicated to no-body convictions around the world in case you're interested. We covered one uh, maybe a, a year more ago, maybe two years ago. It was the first no-body conviction in the state of California. The victim's name was Thora Chamberlain. And I think it was a three or four part series that I did on that one. So it's pretty in-depth story when we did it at the time. I read a book about it, so I had lots of details. Anyway, the finding of the pieces of Heli's body was a critical factor in this case. And it's what they were really concerned about when it came to prosecuting is to not have a victim. Another complication that finding Helly's remains helped solve was the fact that Richard, even if they did arrest him for killing his wife, he technically could not be charged with anything until the medical examiner's office or the coroner makes the official record of her death. But because they didn't have a body, they weren't able to record it and list the cause of death and the manner of death as being homicide. I mean, the cause of death was probably some blunt force trauma, but I don't even know if they would have been able to jump to that conclusion based on the evidence that they had at the home with the blood spatter. But because of that tooth that they found out on the riverbed, they were finally able to make that match to Heli, and the death was finally recorded, and Richard could actually officially be charged with murder. On January 13, 1997, Richard Crafts was arrested at his home. When police showed up, the situation kind of turned a little serious at first. We knew that Richard had his three children and possibly even the nanny inside the house, or they knew that. I don't know why I said we as if I was there. So officers searching the search warrant wanted to be very cautious about the way they approached and dealt with someone like Richard Crafts, purely based on what he was suspected of doing, putting his own wife and the mother of his three children through a wood chipper. If he's capable of doing something like that, then Richard should be considered a very dangerous man who seemed that he would stop at nothing to make sure that he would never be made to answer for his crimes. I mean, almost stop at nothing, probably short of taking his own life. Richard Crafts loves Richard Crafts far too much for that to happen. Police surrounded the house around midnight, but Richard refused to come out when ordered to do so. For about 30 minutes, they tried talking him out, but they didn't want to turn this into a violent confrontation because they knew he had his children inside. But after about a half hour, Richard finally gave himself up and was taken into custody. The next morning, Richard appeared in court for his arraignment, and with that, the news hit Newtown that Richard Crafts was arrested for the murder of his own wife, Helly. But because of the whole wood chipper thing, the news actually went national and apparently international. Back in the late 80s, there wasn't news available everywhere around the clock, and it's been said that the Richard and Helly Crafts case was really the first one that got that type of around-the-clock news cycle going in the area for the first time with the media outlets from around the world all of a sudden showing up in Newtown, including, of course, Denmark, where Heli was originally from. Okay, I'm going to end this episode here and turn this into two parts because... We not only have one trial, but we have two to talk about yet. So that's where we will pick up the story from in the next part, which will be out in about within a week. As far as the brand new podcast that I'm working on is concerned, Only Us in the Building with me and Justin from Mysterious Circumstances, it is slightly delayed because some time got away from us last weekend, but it's coming within just days. It'll be available. It's the podcast about a show about a podcast, Only Murders in the Building. Each week, Justin and I recap and discuss each episode, starting with season one. So make sure you keep your eyes peeled for that. You'll know it when it goes live because I'm going to be telling you all about it because I'm very proud of the work that Justin and I have done so far on this new show that we're starting. 
All right, that's all I've got for tonight. I'm going to get this uploaded, and tomorrow you will be waking up to a brand new episode finally. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for understanding that this summer had been super hectic, but I think it's starting to calm down, and I'm beginning to find my groove again. And as always, until next time, sweet dreams.